1: So this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Joy Wolfram, PhD. Uh, she's in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Mayo. Uh, we're going to be talking about nanoparticles, nanomedicine, and extracellular vesicles, also called exosomes. So Joy, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me, Richard.
1: Yeah, tell me what, what's the focus of your research and your work?
2: So I'm the director of the nanomedicine and Excellular Laboratory in Florida at Mayo Clinic. And um, what we focus on is developing nanomedicines um, to cure or hopefully one day cure diseases such as inflammation and uh, cancer.
1: What's important about it being nanomedicine? Why? What's wrong with micromedicine? What's wrong with picomedicine? Like why that order of magnitude?
2: That's a great question. Well, actually, most... Uh, Conventional medicines are just one molecule. So they're a lot smaller than what we think of nanoparticles. And so one of the advantages of actually having a medicine that is on the nanoscale is that we have more space. And because we have more space, we can add all these extra features to help us um, deliver the medication and also add extra uh, medication into the nanoparticle. And these nanoparticles are basically like tiny cars and the passengers of these cars can be, you know, cancer drugs or anti-inflammatory compounds. And usually we inject them then into the, into the blood. So the blood is like the highway where the cars are driving. And then they drop off the, the medication or the cargo um, at the site of, of, of disease tissue.
1: That's pretty cool. So um, small molecule drugs, the, the nanoparticles you're working on are what, like a thousand times bigger than a typical small molecule drug? just to generalize? Um,
2: Yes, exactly. I would say 100 times bigger because the small molecules are usually one nanometer and our nanoparticles are usually around 100 nanometers.
1: Okay, got it, got it. So you can add functional groups, you could add, I guess, cavities to shield, uh, you know, payloads that can be delivered. I guess you can do all kinds of stuff, right, with nanoparticles because they're bigger?
2: Exactly. Those are great examples of some of the things uh, we and other groups are working on, yes.
1: So, what's your focus within the? You know, are you good at creating the nanoparticles, but you're arming them with functional, functional areas? Like, what's your focus in this area? So, uh,
2: yes, great question. So, my my past focus used to be synthetic nanoparticles. So, we will synthesize these nanoparticles from lipids, like fats, or porous silicon. Um, but today in my lab is primarily focused on extracellular vesicles or exosomes, like you heard earlier and these are actually biological nanoparticles so they're found in our bodies and in all biological liquids such as urine and saliva and so what we do is we use these uh, extracellular vesicles uh, for therapeutic and diagnostic purposes so for instance can we diagnose uh, cancer by looking at the extracellular vesicles um, in the blood or can we take extracellular vesicles from um, adipose tissue, for instance, from fat tissue, and use them for therapeutic purposes? Because we know that um, fat tissue has stem cells, and stem cells have um, anti-inflammatory and also uh, properties that may potentially heal tissue.
1: So what, uh, what kind of cells do you study to see what kind of exosomes they put out? And like, what have you learned in general about? Like, is it a a hard task to generate a nanoparticle from scratch? Is it a lot easier to to make a biocompatible nanoparticle by looking at what cells put out already and just altering them?
2: Yeah, fantastic question. So, um, well, both have their disadvantages and advantages. Um, When you create something from scratch, of course, you have a lot more control over it. Um, But then again, it's difficult to make so much complexity that we see in in biological systems. So the advantage of these extra vesicles is that they're very complex and we don't have to define them from scratch, but it can actually be difficult to to isolate them from uh, cells or tissue. And we are mostly focusing on tissue. So that would be like different cells in adipose tissue or plasma, so blood. So that would be basically extracellular vesicles from every cell in the body because all our cells are releasing these extracellular vesicles that are kind of like text messages and so all of them end up in the blood and when you're analyzing the blood it's actually a mixture um, of cell sources that have released these extracellular vesicles and as you Richard mentioned earlier we can go back and modify them so we can add therapeutic agents inside or perhaps modify the surface to make them even better but essentially, you know, we are taking advantage of uh, nature's own strategies, our own biological strategies that have been developed through millions of years of evolution um, to effectively transport um, molecules in the body. And so we're excited about that.
1: What's your sense of uh, how many different types of EVs a given cell will put out and under what conditions? I mean, are there like thousands of different kinds? And like, how do you even characterize such a thing?
2: Exactly. So that's uh, something that is debated currently in the scientific community is that how many different types of EVs are there just from one single cell type? Um, what type of EVs are released and how do they differ? And so there's a lot that we don't know. And um, there are many groups around the world that are trying to figure out exactly what types of EVs there are. So extra vesicles, EVs, and um, also how we can actually distinguish one subtype from another one um, so currently there's no sort of exact criteria so different groups are using different markers and so on but it's a it's a relatively new field so that's why um, it's exciting but we still um, we still need a lot of knowledge in regards to those types of questions.
1: Do you have an idea where EVs are produced within the cell and then? if EVs enter a cell from an outside source, where they go to in the cell and what happens to them? Yeah,
2: great question. So there's uh, sort of three main categories of EVs, and one is uh, apoptotic bodies. So when a cell dies and there's these large, large extracellular vesicles, Um, then there's also exosomes, and exosomes actually come from the cell, um, from inside the cell, while microvesicles bud from actually the cell um, membrane. So these are the main three types, um, but there may be additional types um, that are formed in different ways that we we don't know about yet. And then when they're taken up by cells, um, you know, they could go to different locations, but usually um, they could go to the lysosome, which is sort of the trash can of the cell, um, or they could have some type of signals that direct them to specific intracellular locations. But again, this is something that, that we're trying to figure out. Is how do they, how does the extracellular but also the intracellular trafficking of these EVs uh, take place? And it's been a little bit difficult because it's not that easy to label the extracellular vesicles. If you use sort of um, lipophilic markers, they may escape from the surface of these extracellular vesicles. So at that point, you don't really know what you're tracking. So the field, we're also trying to develop these methods um, to answer uh, these types of questions.
1: So, so, do we know where? So, we know various places that EVs can be created within the cell, but do we know what structures create them? Are there certain organelles? You know, I know you said there's budding of the interior membrane, I guess, but are there certain organelles that are responsible for creating them and packaging them and sending them out?
2: Absolutely. So, that's mostly for the exosomes. There's an entire machinery. So, uh, it can go, you know, through the Golgi or endoplasmatic reticulum because you know, you need different components. So You need the internal cargo, but you also need the lipids. So there's several internal components that come together, but then you have this similar to the um, vesicle trafficking. When something is taken up, you also have a a vesicle trafficking system when something is um, secreted out from the cell. And also we're still trying to figure out exactly what are the essential pathways necessary um, for these exosomes and also the microvesicles. Um, but microvesicles, you can even, you know, with physical forces or other um, uh, ways you can make the cell, you know, form this uh, budding, budding off from the, from the cell surface. So that may be less complex than this exosome uh, sorting machinery.
1: And when a, um, when a nanoparticle or an exosome enters into the target cell, where does it go?
2: So it's similar to the synthetic nanoparticles. So it can go to many different places. But one of the main places where things go after they've been endocytosed is to the lysosome, which is the trash can. But the lysosome has a lot of enzymes that destroy biomolecules. So they're pH sensitive because it's very acidic pH. So if it does end up in the lysosome, they're usually destroyed or they escape before the lysosome. But then they can go, you know, some of the cargo can even make it through additional barriers, such as the nu- nuclear envelope of the cell. Um, so it depends, on some of it also depends on the resorting of the cargo. So some groups have shown that, you know, RNA can enter from an exfoliate vesicle into a cell and then get repackaged again into a new exfoliate vesicle that then gets released. So um, sometimes the cargo doesn't even stay uh, permanently in the cell that, that it's taken up by.
1: It, it, what is your thought? You know, when a particle enters a cell, what is determining where it should go, how it should be treated? What do you think is the mechanism for that? Like how would, you know, if you think about it, there's no discernment, then you just have to evade, I guess, what the, the cell would normally do to the particle that enters it. But if you think there's discernment, then I guess you could work within that you know, to, to tailor the particle so that it can go to the right place or be recognized in the right way. Like, what's the overall theory that you have?
2: Absolutely. So it's, a, it's many different factors. So something as simple as a shape can affect how they are processed by the, the cells. It's also uh, the physic, other physical properties such as surface charge and uh, even the softness of the particle itself. Um, so there's different receptors on the cell surface um, that can sense, uh, you know, if you're dealing with a very soft nano- extracellular vesicle or hard extracellular vesicle, um, of course, synthetic nanoparticles, some of them like gold, is very, um, a very hard material, so it's processed in a, in a certain way. And those are sort of the things that we don't normally think about. We normally think about these proteins on the surface and the proteins will bind um, to something the proteins on the surface of the extra vesicles will bind to something um, on the cell surface, but it's also all of these physical properties that actually can affect um, how the extra vesicle is taken up and processed. And recently it was shown that cancer cells that are metastatic actually release extra vesicles that are softer. So there's all these uh, interesting physical properties. And, and honestly, a lot of this, you know, is not known even for synthetic nanoparticles. There are certain uptake pathways like clathrin-mediated endocytosis that typically, you know, result in one outcome. And sometimes just by changing the charge of these nanoparticles, can you get it to go to the Cavioli pathway, which is another endocytosis pathway. But still, we don't understand exactly what is affecting um, how things are being sorted inside the cell.
1: Well, what's amazing to me is that cells, for instance, in our body are in this milieu of Uh, tons of stuff floating around, you know, how do they know, okay, I've got, you know, I'm a liver cell. I need to talk to the heart cells. or I need to talk to this other type of cell. So I need to prepare um, an EV that, that the other cell will take in and recognize and, you know, perform a certain action. Or if I, if I'm taking in hundreds or thousands, or, you know, God knows how many different EVs internally, how do I know what to do with them? It just doesn't seem possible that it's just, uh, you know, it's random. There's got to be some, I don't know, discernment mechanism somehow or multiple.
2: Absol- yes, that's absolutely a very good point. And the other thing is that um, originally, uh, let's say 10 years ago, um, the scientific community really thought that the vesicles were just waste products so that they didn't have really a functional role in communication between cells. Um, and today we have several examples that they do However, we don't know to what extent. So, we don't know if 50% of the extracellular vesicles are just waste products and 50% are involved in cell communication, or whether it's just a small portion, such as 1% of the extracellular vesicles that are in our body, that actually communicate between cells and the rest are more of a waste system to get rid of um, biomolecules such as RNA. So, that's, that's a great question. And these are, are things that we still need to, to figure out.
1: Sure. It's a very complica- complicated problem. What, what's your targeting? Are you looking at trying to affect certain conditions? Are you looking at certain mechanisms of doing this? Like, What's your focus?
2: So our focus is actually um, twofold. So one, one is on the diagnostic side, and that relates to cancer, and specifically to metastasis. So can we, by uh, looking at the sugars, so a lot of people don't talk about the glycans, the sugars, and they've been sort of overlooked, but we believe that they're very important in cancer um, when they're on the surface of extracellular vesicles. So by looking at extracellular vesicles in patients' blood and specifically uh, the sugars on the surface, can we predict which patients are likely to develop cancer metastasis? And by doing that, uh, potentially we could then, if it works, um, have these patients that are at risk uh, get more aggressive treatment Um, then the patients that are not at risk for the cancer to spread. And sort of the second direction of my lab is therapeutics. And like I was mentioning earlier from adipose tissue, and the specific conditions we're looking at is can we take a patient's fat, isolate the extracellular vesicles, and then use them for conditions such as myocarditis, which is heart inflammation, or lung ischemia reperfusion injury. So when the lung doesn't get oxygen for some time and then for instance uh, the blood vessel is blocked and then it's reopened you have a lot of inflammation so can we use those extracellular vesicles from the fat to lower this and within this context can we also load them with the uh, conventional anti-inflammatory uh, therapeutic agents and so we get combination therapy so we get the endogenous anti-inflammatory properties um, from the vesicles in addition to then Getting um, the effects from the small molecule that we have loaded inside um, the adipose extracellular vesicles.
1: Well, in terms of um, communication, have you looked at communication going on between, like, a you know, I'm talking about cancer. So the primary tumor and metastases. Have you looked at what kind of communication is going on? Do you believe there is communication going on between, like, the primary tumor and the metastases, the metastatic sites?
2: Exactly. So, so we're currently looking uh, a little bit into that, but there are other groups that have definitely already in 2015 shown that the primary tumor can release extra vesicles that then go to distant organs and they prime uh, the organ for the cancer cells later to metastasize from the primary tumor. So they contribute to this pre-metastatic niche. And so I do think that some of these studies are convincing and that there could be definitely a major role that these actual vesicles play in the metastatic process. And so that ties a little bit into our research in, in, in cancer diagnostics is, you know, this happens before or we believe that it may happen before um, the cancer cells metastasize. So it's a good way to potentially predict which patients will develop metastasis by catching these extracellular vesicles in the blood when they are released by the primary tumor before the metastatic process.
1: Yeah, or even when it goes on, you know, if you were able to cut off communication, if there is communication, you know, what, I wonder what that would do. And um, Is there a way to tag exosomes yet? Uh, and see where they go in the body and what other cells they, they go inside of? Uh,
2: exactly. So I touched a little bit upon that is, uh with the use of these lipophilic dyes, uh, fluorescent dyes, and that's the most common method, but again, not very reliable, because these dyes, you know, they can detach from the extracellular vesicles after you've injected them, and then if you see a fluorescent signal, you don't really know where it's coming from. Um, so more sort of advanced techniques are radio labeling. So you have a radioactive probe um, that can tell you uh, where the vesicles are going. Um, and some even um, inorganic um, molecules can be loaded inside the extra vesicles and you can detect them in that manner. But, but it, it, it's challenging. It has been challenging. But a lot of groups around the world are, are developing improved methods to, to track these vesicles inside the body.
1: Yeah, I wonder if if any cell has, like, a homing pigeon-type vesicle where they send it out, it does something, gathers info, and it comes back to that cell. I mean, that's pretty crazy, but I don't know, just the thought occurred.
2: No, that's fantastic. Um, Yes, definitely. Maybe not the exact same membrane, but the cargo may be um, coming back because we know it's already going through multiple cells, and it can be repackaged. But I've... um, I haven't seen any reports of them it returning that same cargo returning to the same cell, but that would be that would be a nice feedback loop there, so potentially if we wait a few more years, then maybe you're hmm. proven right
1: so where do you think the uh, the initial breakthroughs are going to come from what What part of your study do you think uh, may hold the key in the most promising area where you, you think you're going to make a breakthrough?
2: Well, I think uh, you know what I'm excited about is is regenerative medicine applications, because in general that's an emerging field, and um, there's a lot of unmet patient needs that we could potentially um, solve by, by developing regenerative medicine. and there's already, I think, four clinical trials around the world, not by us, um, that are looking at extracellular vesicles uh, for various uh, regenerative purposes, such as you know di- diabetes um related wounds and and even diabetes itself um, so how can we restore damaged tissue so i think that's an exciting uh, avenue to explore
1: well i guess for a real head trip you know do you think that um our microbiome is sending out evs and receiving evs and those are talking to our you know somatic cells you think there's communication there
2: oh absolutely i think it's uh, it's been shown it's not my of research, but I, but I know that there is communication between the extra from, let's say, the bacteria and, and, and fungus in our body with our own cells. And I think that type of communication has also, you know, developed um, through many years of evolution where we have this synergistic relationship between uh, the microbiome and, and our bodies. And I'm sure some of that is through extra vesicle uh, transfer.
1: And what about, um, what if all these cell types, let's say in the human body were characterized, you know, their membranes, what they look like, what proteins were there, et cetera. Um, perhaps then a nanoparticle could be created or an EV could be co-opted and it would target only a certain kind of cell because we'd know that's the only type of cell that has this structure on its membrane and the EV or the nanoparticle we made will only get in through that kind of a portal so we can target that cell specifically.
2: Yes, potentially. That's a great idea. I think we're uh, um, still far away from that in, in, in mapping exactly all the membranes um, in the body and understanding uh, how they work. And um, and also, you know, the, the extra vesicle membranes don't necessarily uh, correlate with the cell membrane, especially if they're um, exosomes. Uh, so there could be a lot more uh intracellular and extracellular membranes um apart from the cell membrane um that could be characterized but i definitely think you know down the line um that could be possible and we would probably need a lot of computational tools as well to to um generate and analyze that much uh, data and a lot of these membranes are not static either so they're dynamic and they're you know the, the, the actually the cell membrane it's it's usually you think of it as you know something that just sits there but it's actually a lot of movement and there are a lot of biomolecules moving all the time on the surface and just the how they move the direction and the you know the speed they're moving all of that could be very important for biological uh, interactions
1: hey, it's like mind blowing like you have, have you ever tried to you know imagine yourself as a cell what you would see on the outside, what you have going on in the inside and all the, you know, again, I'm anthropomorphizing it, but all the decisions and the discernment you'd have to make in interpreting all this stuff going on, you know, there's
2: thousands or millions of
1: things outside of you.
2: Exactly. And there's some, I know of some people that have even created like dance groups that the dancers, uh, try to mimic what is going on inside the cell. So there's a lot of exciting things um, that we can do for a science education is by imagining how, what is happening in the cell through using also the art. Hmm.
1: So what's, um, well, I, I guess there's just so much to ask. Um, what um, what do you think is possible in the next five or 10 years, in particular with your research? What headway do you think that you uh, you can make or what would be a, a fantastic result if you can achieve it?
2: Exactly, well, As you know, uh, Richard, it takes 12 years, usually, that's the average, to get something from the lab into the clinic, and and that's around $2.7 billion, so it is a marathon, and and that's if you're successful, and, and, you know, over 90% of what we develop ends up failing at some stage before it reaches the patient. Um, So I think there's a lot of sort of intermediate success stories, potentially, um, you know, my career goal would be to get something um, into the clinic to help patients, but there's never any guarantees. Um, but in general, for the field, I think, uh, in, you know, already now and in the couple of years ahead, we are seeing a lot of cosmetic applications uh, for extra lab and and uh, these cosmetics are not necessarily regulated at all, which makes it faster, but there can also be a lot of um, ethical issues um, when you're injecting things um into the body even though it's not for medical purposes so this also depends on the the country that you're looking at but i already know that there are some lotions on the market uh that have extracellular vesicles uh, in them so we're already tr- uh, starting to see those those products
1: oh what have you seen as the effects of those lotions Did you get any insight from from seeing them and seeing what they do
2: um so um The one example I know is from a Korean company, and uh, I believe that the science is is quite solid. But the problem is that the the dose, the dose of extra vesicles in the lotions is is too low. So um, at the moment, you know, the the dose would probably not have any biological effects. But then if they could increase the dose, but that would also significantly increase increase the price of these lotions, um, there could potentially be some effects. And this is from... uh, mesenchymal stem cells so these are the the stem cells that are releasing the actually vesicles
1: yeah for um for a topical application what i mean how much how many evs would you need like millions or billions or trillions of them and then if you were to inject something that would go through the bloodstream is there any sense of how many evs would be needed to accomplish the therapy
2: uh yes there is so it it varies but usually it's uh you know depending on the the species uh it's usually something like for 10 to the 7 to 10 to the 9 vesicles, even 10 to the 12. But actually in the human body, um, the plasma itself has 10 to the 9, uh, so a billion vesicles per milliliter. So probably that's sort of what the cells are exposed to in our body. So probably you need, need a dose to kind of compete with uh, what is already in the body. And as you mentioned earlier, there's so much going on. There's so many extra vesicles from all these cells being released. So, so, um, you know, dose is always uh, an important question.
1: Yeah. And have you seen uh, examples of someone, um, you know, with cells and culture and putting them through different paces, I don't know, like changing the pH, seeing what, what vesicles they put out, uh, changing the temperature, putting your food source, uh, you know, has anyone done something like that to just try to characterize you know stimulus response in terms of EVs that are put out?
2: Yes, absolutely again, amazing questions here uh, Yes, yeah, so one of the sort of main things is that um, when a cell is under stress, so whether that's you know lack of oxygen, lack of uh, you know nutrients or if it's mechanical stress like you're you're pressing on it, um, any type of stress tends to usually increase. Um, the amount of extracellular vesicles, um, and others have also tried, you know, giving mol- various molecular compounds to ex- extracellular vesicles, such as, like, in- inflammatory compounds, to see how that changes um, the amount and type of vesicles, um, but there's still so much that we don't know, and there's many, many interesting studies we could do, um, especially, like, with pH and so on.
1: Okay. Well, very good. What's the um, best way for people to find out more <clears throat> about nanoparticles and EVs in general and then in specific? I don't know if you know. Uh, you wish any contact to your lab or anyone to find you?
2: Absolutely. So um, you can learn more by checking out my TED talk, and then you can uh, contact me through email uh, as well. So my mail email is available online. So I right. I enjoy hearing from the colleagues in the scientific community, but also from uh, the general public.
1: Well, that's great. Well, Joy, anything else that I I should have brought up that I didn't include?
2: Well, you know, in general, I think it's, uh, you know, unrelated from excellent vesicles, but related to the scientific process and and science is that, you know, we need more um, representation from diverse uh, scientists. So we need to support women in science. We need to support racial minorities. And that's something so important uh, also on the intellectual level, because if we have people that think in the same way, we're not going to have that many new ideas. But if we have people from different backgrounds, different races, different genders, we're going to have a lot more creativity and we're going to be able to to solve um, mm-hmm. more challenges because we're coming at it from, from many different viewpoints and, and also different leadership styles um, that are necessary to, to make progress for ethical research, but for really for any any field of research
1: okay well very good well i I appreciate you coming on the podcast thank you for being here
2: yeah thank you so much richard and i'm very impressed by the uh scientific questions
1: oh thank you i'm I'm a good questioner i don't know if i have answers but uh, got a lot of questions
0: you're listening to the future tech podcast with richard jacobs